This episode is brought to you by Charcoal Book Club. Each month, Charcoal selects a first edition monograph that's a must-have for every photo book collection. Each book arrives signed by the artist with a print and a note card from the guest curator, not to mention free shipping to the US, Canada, and the UK. If you already have the book, you can simply swap it out for another one in their bookshop. Some of my favorite books in the past few months have been Half Story, Half Life by Raymond Meeks and Wood River Blue Pool by Joanne Walters. Many of the books of the month are now out of print and really expensive, but I have a copy thanks to the book club. Just one of the many reasons that I love being a member of Charcoal. Try it for yourself. Join the club at charcoalbookclub.com. I'm Jordan Weitzman and you're listening to Magic Hour. Joanne Callis's photographs have such an uncanny strangeness to them. They often feel like they could be stills out of a David Lynch film, but she was making them long before Blue Velvet and Mulholland Drive came to be. She was born in Cincinnati and pursued her interest in art at Ohio State University, though her education was interrupted by marriage, moving out to LA, and having kids. These challenges, though, would become a big part of her subject matter. She's always been interested in the domestic as a setting, the body, femininity and sexuality, but her pictures have always complicated something that might seem so familiar to us all. She enrolled at UCLA and it was there that she studied under the highly inventive Robert Heineken in the early 70s. He made a big impact on her. He turned her on to the work of Paul Outerbridge and encouraged her to pursue what was going on in her life and inside her head as fodder for her work. I met her at her home in Culver City, Los Angeles, where she's been living for the past 38 years. We started talking about her working process how she actually approached making pictures. I can get into what I want to express in my head, even with all that's going on. You know, you have to load the film properly and just take the meter reading, and there's there's a lot of stuff going on in your head besides something emotional. But the emotional thing or the idea comes first. That feeling of what you want to do comes way before I'm in the studio or at somebody's house shooting or something. Right. Would you often produce something completely different, something that would surprise you? It's always a surprise, even if something you thought of comes out, because the translation from your head to the photograph is huge. (laughs) There's a lot of things (laughs) in between. So, yeah, it's very exciting if something that you didn't expect could happen. And you can let go of what the original thing and just try it on another uh, time, you know, and yeah, yeah, oh, sure. You want to be open to gifts that are given to you on your proof sheet that <laughs> <laughs> you had no idea. Look how that lined up, my god. And if certainly, if something's moving, you don't have any idea. I, I photographed some lizards once, actually, they were geckos, and I made a screen and they were running around the screen. They're live animals, so they were just doing their thing, grabbing their little nails onto the screen. and so I was just, oh, you know, go here or there. And I also goldfish are swimming around in my sink. So, you know, just keep shooting. What was the first serious work that you did or that you considered important? Was it the early color work or was it black, some black and white stuff? No, I mean, before? right away. Um, I owe a lot of that to Heineken, who was my teacher, Robert Heineken. It's amazing how much of an influence he's had on so many, um, right. so many photographers. How did he teach? You know, I I was telling this couple, too, that when I learned how to use the camera from him in his class, all I wanted to do is work like crazy so that every week I would have new photographs. And when you're setting things up, plus you have two kids at home and a husband and 
you know, everything. It takes time to set up. You can't go out like Winogrand and shoot anything. Mm-hmm. I mean, on the you have to prepare it, stage it. Yeah. So, because I wanted him to critique my work and loved hearing about what he had to say. And so he was very supportive of me, but really of everybody. He he could, you felt like he could see deep inside of you somehow. Mm-hmm. But this was all new to me. I was this this kind of critiquing that he did. He was, he had great insight. He was very smart. He was funny. He had great wonderful sense of humor, very wry wit. And he would make you excited about what you were doing and then try to show you ways to improve what you were doing rather than change you into something you weren't. So Hmm. from the very beginning, there were no assignments. It was just photograph what you want, what you are interested in. And so I've tried to teach that way as well be passionate. And so he would just fuel that fire. He would make suggestions, but he would never put you down. Like what kind of things would he say? The best thing he could say was, that's pretty interesting. Uh (laughs) (laughs) It sounds funny now, but I was like, oh, wow. (laughs) He tried to get you to see where it fit in, where you fit in to different ways of photographing to place your work. Like for me, it was surrealism and, you know, suggestions of look at this, look at that. So there was that. And then, um, oh, that's the other thing. He never, ever tried to make you do what he did. (laughs) In fact, I started off with a negative because I was learning how to use the camera. So, you know, you put film and you shoot it and you get a negative. And so right away he said, you know, you don't have to try these other things. It was a time of a lot of experimentation, blueprinting, brown printing, you know, Van Dyke and all kinds of bleaching and collaging things and just all that there were other methods too of making photographs and mm-hmm. he himself was doing appropriations and so on he said but you know you're doing pretty well with this idea of the negative <laughs> so mm-hmm. you know you just said why don't you just explore this for a while and so i never felt any pressure that i had to do something but i did learn some things i just remember one photograph of his he it was a woman and she was holding an egg in her hand and there were lots of other things going on, but there was something. There's something about that. I just, I don't know. I just it was the juxtaposition of her hand and that egg, sitting in the hand, and I it clicked. It's just like oh, I get it. I I get it. Hmm. And maybe it's it's all it's the symbol of the egg, but it was really the feel of the egg. That's or that's how I saw it. And maybe that's my own. So for me to take, um, to, I was trying to make pictures at the beginning to, like, what does it feel like? Mm-hmm. With the tactility of it, the um, not just visually having juxtapositions or contrasts against one another, light and dark, all the formal aspects of making pictures, but 
it was, what would that feel like to, you know, to draw a line down the back or to sit back in a, like if you get in a bathtub, the water's warm, but usually it's not up to the brim. So you sit back and your back hits the cold porcelain and for a moment, but you're having the heat on the rest of your body, but that cold for a moment, it's, it's, um, it's just a sensation. So I was trying to get some of that, like oily things or sticky things and to stimulate the senses visually mm. and uh, the touch of things. So that was the kind of quality that you were after that you were looking for in the pictures. A lot of your pictures have people in them, oftentimes ne not necessarily specific people, but... Um, no, they were never about the people. Never about the people. It was always someone just A to, person. A person. It could be the viewer. It could be any person. Yeah. Not kind of an anonymous person. I know that you've spoken about that anonymity of, of the people, but I'm interested in how you thought about the types of people, even the body types that you kind of were mm -hmm. attracted to, not necessarily personally attracted to, but no, photographically attracted to. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Well, I loved uh, ambiguity, um, gender, people sometimes who look ambiguous or that their bodies are kind of regular and... I can't even, I don't know. It's just, it's like, why are you attracted to that person? Right. And so there was something that, that would, he, that person would make a great model. You know, I just love the way they're put together and kind of the way they look, uh, the way they stand and sit and everything. Yeah. The hair. And I tried to find people that didn't look too, much one thing or the other. I didn't want it to be about, okay, I'm representing an African-American. I have to have an Asian here. Or I mean, that was before people were just starting to talk about that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. But it was more like a body that could re represent a body without calling attention to itself as having particular peculiarities. So, not, so as not to draw attention to their personalities or their ethnicity or when you were making those early photos you were in your you were in your mid-30s mm -hmm. a lot of those pictures i mean they still seem very provocative mm -hmm. in in many ways and i'm sure back then they must have even been more so but it was a yeah. wild time then too mm. because we're talking late 70s into the 80s it was everything was breaking open women's lib and free love and this was right before the aids mm -hmm. epidemic and so well making the work is one thing the actual the shooting the production of it that's almost this very private or solitary affair but then showing those pictures is another story did those times make it more comfortable to show those pictures or was there always a little bit of self-consciousness or even fear attached to that you know it's funny because i didn't feel so self-conscious i think because heineken was so positive you know uh -huh. i knew i thought well he's somebody that i can respect and he thinks they're good <laughs> so i had the the nerve to just show them and it was a time of um you know they talk about the 20s and how different that was from the teens, like after the First World War. And 
the roaring 20s and how things opened up and so on. So I think the 60s and 70s, flower power, all that drugs, is all, you know, throw away the suits, get your hair to be long, and all that meant something. Yeah. Like you were throwing off the old and embracing the new, new age, everything with crystals and, you know... Meditation was popular and was almost uh, everything was different. Yeah, in quotes. So I think the only time I felt self-conscious about the work, really self-conscious, was when I started teaching at Cal Arts because that's a pretty theoretical school and it was very conceptually oriented. So even though I had ideas about my work, I never thought of it as conceptual work. And so, I mean, I think it's good work. I think it's smart enough. I think, but it's not about those kinds of ideas. And and then it looks different. It's much more emotional looking. Their work, when I first started teaching, it seemed much more like the author, the artist, wasn't supposed to show anything it was all about the idea like you could even type something on a piece of paper and put it on the wall with a push pin and that was your art and that was accepted and that's what was being championed at the time so there I come to work and I think oh my god my work and I could hear in critiques that it wasn't valued what I was doing so I thought okay forget (laughs) it I'm just want to keep this job I'm just gonna lay low not almost apologizing for the work I had done. Hmm. So you were doing those early color pictures and which were like mostly of, uh, you know, people pictures. And then you, there's been this interesting evolution in your work. You did your food series, mm-hmm. desserts. Yeah. I wonder if you could just talk a bit about the pervasiveness and the themes of your work or like the, the through line in your work. The through line, it seems like I always care about the aesthetics of the image the structure of it, the formal aspects, but I and I always care about. I, I seem to care about objects a lot. I love. I love objects. I know it sounds so, so stupid to say that. Not all objects, mm-hmm. but I, I care about how they look in the form, the function of them, or the decorativeness of them, or I don't know. They appeal to me, mm. and. And they mean something in my life, the objects that one has around them and and the environment. A lot of my things are have to do with the domestic space. Doing the Olympics when I photographed the Olympics that were here in '84, uh, was using different spaces, not domestic spaces, but mostly interiors, all interiors actually. I don't. Only some very early things were shot outside black and whites so it's domestic things it's psychological things it's um, appealing to the senses that sense of tactility and how different colors can create an emotional response like an icky green next to a nice pink and and also patterns of things like every pattern has refers to different some plaids make things feel casual and polka dots have another um, effect something maybe more playful and then uh, 
fabric is very expressive and that's a, a, sort of a domestic thing. So mm, I love fabric and I love the way it looks when you put light on it and if it reflects or it, how it, how the folds create these shapes. So it's almost like sculpture and, um, it can set the scene. It's part of the scene. You're always making use of those types of materials and settings. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And so, and then food, I mean, I love food and I love the way it looks and I love the way it tastes. And, you know, so there's a lot of senses that are involved in food and especially sweets because they're like little jewels and they're sexy and they're the language around sweets Mm -hmm. about guilt and I shouldn't have eaten that. I shouldn't have. So there's that pleasure, see, but then you have pleasure and then you have to pay for it. You know, you step on the scale and then, but that has to do with sex too. You know, it's like there's the pleasure and the sin all, I mean, yeah. if you can Christian, Judeo-Christian teachings and yeah, yeah. So, so there's always the, the dichotomy. So I'm playing with that too. And so I think that's the through line, um, decorating, playing around with what's too much pattern and too much color, like over the top decorating and, um, I would think carefully about what my models were wearing. Nothing that was too stylish that would date it to a certain era too much. You want, you want things to be more timeless. You didn't want to date it. Yeah. I didn't. I think there's, of course, some of it is, even in hairstyles, I mean, you look back now on movies made in the seventies, and everybody looks ridiculous. Yeah, or amazing, <laughs> like, or, or amazing. amazing. But I don't know the styles in the eighties with his huge shoulders. We all thought that was so cool, mm-hmm. and now you just look ridiculous. <laughs> <It's> like, <laughs> and the glasses, there was always a thing. My mom had these glasses for so many years, and they were so outdated by the nineties. But she was wearing. And they had this crook in them, and they were big glasses. I don't know. Some yeah. of it looked very funny looking back on them. Anyway. What did your mom do in life? Well, she was a teacher, but she did have an artistic bent, and she she was very conscious of clothing and fabric and design and interior design. And so I I learned a lot just being her daughter, I think. I love clothing. Yeah? Yeah, it's a passion. It's not that I study designers or I'm following them so much, but I just appreciate what people are wearing and how they put it together and what effect they're trying to, what they're trying to communicate in the way they wear their hair or what they're wearing and how studied it is or not. Mm -hmm. But everything has a meaning. Everything gives off a meaning. Yeah. Yeah. Everything. Yeah. Because we, we understand living in this Western culture we're in. We understand all of it, whether you know it or not, or whether you think about it, you take it in. I mean, the moment you saw me, you made an assessment. I made an assessment of you. Yeah. And you do that all the time. Yeah. That's an interesting thing to talk about because I think everyone kind of does it. You do it. Yeah. You can't help but do it. Yeah. And when you talk to them, that may change your first impression, but, you know... 
this this man came up to me at Perry Photo and he he just had seen my work and I was there and so he looked at me and he said oh my goodness I thought you'd be so much younger <laughs> so, <laughs> that old lady there <laughs> that's who I'm talking to but I I just laughed I thought it was very I took it as a compliment because well, he was co- looking mm-hmm. at my photographs and he was thinking this must have been done by a younger woman or you know it's more they look so contemporary to today and oh, yeah. I, to him anyway and to others I, they tell me so I, yeah it's great I'm Jordan Weitzman and you're listening to my conversation with Joanne Callis to see more of Joanne's work and to find out more about the show follow us on Instagram at Magic Hour Podcast I keep on glancing over at this lamp which I, <laughs> which I mentioned when I first walked in I was curious if it was the same lamp in your photo twirling which is woman twirling woman twirling mm-hmm. not to reduce it to a description but if you don't know it it's a picture it's this a lamp this solitary object juxtaposed with a woman with a woman twirling away it's just mm-hmm. really those two elements in a room and i think it's been on my mind i mean i've always loved the photo but um i heard you describe it in a way that i just thought was so i don't know interesting and beautiful and just really stuck with me which was that how people are i don't know people in your in your life are transient and you know come and go and these objects are solitary they're always they don't go anywhere they're always next to us i wonder if you could speak to that a little bit that was the idea at that period in my work i was trying to make a series of pictures around that idea of um relationships are always in a state of uh, flux and as we are as human beings we're always changing and evolving into something else and something else and we don't forces around us change and we change and age changes us and more people we meet more experiences we have changes our views on things perhaps but the objects I mean, I always sit in this place on this table and I know all these scratches and I know I'm familiar with it because I'm always on this table at this end. Mm -hmm. And same with, like some of this stuff has been around forever and in my life and it's just part of home. And home is the place you feel comfortable, but it can be the place where there's a lot of tension and can be, you know, in your own drama is going on often in the home and has its origins there. And so it's, it's, it's got a little bit double-edged sword, but you hope it's mostly comfort. How long have you been in this house for? I've been here since 1980, but I moved around before that quite a bit, actually, just I was in L.A. area, but many different places. 38 years. Yeah. And, but, you know, every time I move, because it's so important for me to have everything in its place, like I can't live in too much chaos. And mm-hmm. I just, it just, I mean, I can. I'm not going to die from it. But <laughs> it feels very uncomfortable if there's a, too much chaos around me. So... I try to ignore some of the chaos that I'm looking at right over there, but um, I feel like um, 
I would move and I would have everything put away. I would start moving little by little into the new place and then the apartment or whatever it was, a rented home. And by evening of the day I moved, I had everything put away and I had pictures hung. Mm -hmm. And then the evening news would come on and it was Walter Cronkite or somebody. And it was just that familiar voice. And it was like, okay, everything's okay. It's the same TV show at six o'clock and... I'm in the new place and everything is kind of put away. Most of the boxes are unpacked because I had done some of it ahead of time. And so it was just a way of um, not being so unsettling because moving to me is is disruptive. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Especially with all the books. Books and just your familiar stuff. It's all not around you anymore. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah, the sense of calm that you try to that I try to achieve is not there and I try hard to get it back it's an interesting counterpoint to the feeling in some of your pictures because oftentimes calm isn't an adjective that I'd use to describe them no there's almost a lot there's a lot of tension a lot of tension because inside (laughs) the calm is only to help to ameliorate the tension of being alive yeah I want to ask you about another picture. I'm going to describe it because I don't know its title offhand. But it's a picture of a... Oh, go- by the way, yeah. in Woman Twirling, the yeah. couple, there's a, the lamp is composed of uh, this couple who are embracing and dancing. And the woman twirling is... I asked the model to twirl madly into the wall. Mm-hmm. And so um, she was a dancer and she knew how to twirl. And so... Um, that's that's what that was about this as opposed to the couple who are solid together and she mm. is spinning mm-hmm. so yeah go ahead interesting yeah i wanted to ask you about the picture of a guy he's balanced on there's two chairs mm-hmm. and a mirror under him man doing push-ups man doing push-ups what was that picture all about well it was about exercising mm-hmm well, first of all, a man doing push-ups is a little suggestive, mm-hmm. just in the title. Uh-huh. But he is actually, he was a strong guy, and um, he was a student. And I said, can, you think you can do it between two chairs? So it's it was like a little scary, you know. Like So there was tension in trying to do that with on two chairs. Well, I think they were these chairs, actually. Really? Yeah. <laughs> and, and so, um, and then I put a mirror under him. So maybe I was thinking of water, but also the reflection of what that looked like. So as he was moving up and doing these push-ups, he was moving. So there was distortion of the mirror. So it was kind of like admiring yourself, like admiring your physique and your muscles and you know I'm, I work out and I do it push-ups and I got muscles and <laughs> and and looking at yourself you know mm-hmm. that and so um it was a little bit about showing off exercising and watching yourself do it mm-hmm. and but a little danger in doing it between chairs which is not like the floor. So you're up higher. And there's a rolled up carpet in there. Yeah. 
that was kind of like a heavy, you know, to explain it. It's yeah, just yeah, to yeah. explain it away. It was, yeah, that was an element. And when I rolled the carpet, I was surprised at how heavy it was <laughs> to move. <laughs> and, but it, it also just became this tubular shape. So mm, right. you can make of that anything but it's also in houses there are rugs and sometimes you have to roll up the rug to do whatever you want to do dance or make a picture or whatever sometimes yeah. if it's not wall-to-wall carpet it's it can be moved and so that was moved and filled that space and yeah and you and i don't like to make things too explicit I, nothing ever is explicit but it's suggested or something else people see all kinds of things and it's nice do you feel like that suggestiveness even in your mind when you're making something you're putting something together whether it be like a preconception of it or in the moment is all that's important for you is that it feels right, or does that do those kind of meanings need to be worked out in your head? Those connotations that his no, that, I that think it have, just has to feel right. It just has to feel right because you're just trying stuff in a way. You're just saying, "Oh, what would happen?" You know, I think, and then yeah, that would be a good idea. The heaviness of it, the, something about the heft of that, and I don't remember exactly what I was thinking, but. It's very intuitive. Yeah. You don't still take pictures anymore, do you? I'm not. I'm not at the moment. I did take one a few years ago for this show to go into a portfolio just to add another photo to it and just see what I would do. And I love the picture I made. And I yeah. thought, yes. <laughs> but <laughs> I, I didn't. Got it. I, yeah. I didn't want to go on with that series. Um, I, I am I'm making things and I do want to photograph them and I have ideas of how they should look and what it should be but I'm so busy with other things right now mm-hmm. and teaching I still teach one day a week and I care give my husband a lot and I'm running the house and everything else that is connected with all that and mm-hmm. I Keep, try to have friends and <laughs> just keep that up and I don't know it's just a lot it's a full life it's a very full life what do you still teach one day a week oh um f- photo s- students I I don't teach the classes but I anymore but I do meet them one-to-one and we just talk about their work mm-hmm. and that's really the best I have the best setup now yeah because the classes drove me crazy at just made me nervous and worried all the time but I finally was able to get to half time and now I'm quarter time so that I'm not teaching any classes and mm-hmm. it's great nice yeah it's the best you've been doing this for a long time is this what you thought being an artist was going to be what it is now I never thought about what it's going to be mm-hmm. I only thought can I get through this mm-hmm. and that and the next thing raising my kids can I get can I get them to adulthood? Mm-hmm. 
can I get through the teaching thing? Can I um, keep making my work? That was always a concern. Um, am I going to keep having ideas? <laughs> <laughs> I just, I don't know. I can't, I could never make a 10-year plan. That just seems nuts. <laughs> Nuts to me. Nuts. <laughs> I, I just when when I hear anyone talk about these ideas of two year plans, five year plans, ten year plans, I mean, I just cannot grasp that kind of thinking. Me either. Yeah. Me either. Because who knows? Who knows? Yeah. I would never have thought any of this. I just making the work, and then I want to show it. Right. And then I want to make some more work, and I want to show it, and I want to keep showing my work, and I want to keep making my work. Yeah. So whatever you have to do to make that continue to happen is what you do. And it still feels that way. Yeah. Well, that's great. I hope you keep on doing me it. Me too. <laughs> <laughs> well, thanks so much for having me here. It's a pleasure. The pleasure was really it. mine. Yeah. yeah. I enjoyed it a lot. That was my conversation with Joanne Callis that we recorded in Culver City, Los Angeles. This episode was produced by me, Jordan Weitzman, and was edited by Crystal Duhame. Original music in this episode by Adam Feingold. To find out more about the show, visit us at magichourpodcast.org and follow us on Instagram at magichourpodcast. You can also leave us a review on iTunes if you have a minute. It helps others discover the show and we'd really appreciate it. Thanks for tuning in and see you next time.